Yeah, go ahead. Are you ready? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've had a lovely lunch. It's time to get back to the third part of our, our afternoon, which will be our question period. Before we do that, I have two announcements that um, would, might be of interest to you. First, on Saturday, October the 3rd at the University, we're having a discussion on 300 years of Canadian aid and exploitation in Africa. Your speaker is I Engler, and that's at the um, University of Lethbridge in the um, Choice Saving Centre. And then next Thursday, the Syrian refugee crisis, what's happening here, and Pastor uh, Ryan Duick is going to come and speak on the Syrian issue, the refugee crisis. So, Shannon, I will ask you to come back to the podium. We have our mic over on the right with Henny at it. And so I would ask that you go and be there, ready to ask your questions. Keep your questions short, your preambles short. Questions can be a little longer. Your preambles need to be shorter. And we will go from there. Thank you. Hi, Shannon. I'm seeing double. Um, no, there's another Shannon right beside you. <laughs> uh, my name is Hang Mundell, and uh, uh, I used to be a scientist at the Agriculture Research Station and hence a member of PIPS. Um, when this spring, when we found out about the library closure there, yes, we were able to get there and get photos of books and pamphlets and dumpsters and all that. And then hearing the government response that uh, things of business value are, are being digitized. My question though is, from the other parties, other than the conservative, aside from an outrage about uh, the erosion of uh, knowledge through books, through reports, through uh, data collected over decades, and the muzzling of scientists, have you heard any specific suggestions? Well, all of the, uh, the three other national parties have released their uh, science platforms now. The NDP was just released uh, a few days ago. So that provides some basis for understanding at least of how the parties are looking to position themselves around these issues. I think you make a really good point about the challenge of moving from both what I'm sure is genuine outrage, as I think many of us feel, over the decimation of our capacity for evidence-based decision-making, but also um, a politician's eagerness to capitalize politically on an issue of public concern, to find out exactly what would be the intent intentions of any party should it come to power. Um, so wanting to try to press a bit on that issue uh, was part of why Evidence for Democracy undertook our survey. Um, to push uh, the parties a bit harder in areas that we thought would be important to do so. Uh, and uh, so if you would like to see the specific responses from the parties, so the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals, check out the website. It was a fairly long survey, and so I'm not able to sort of summarize it all here, but it is there as a resource. And it does include some specific commitments 
And I think it's those specific commitments that are especially important. Because as, as I said earlier, on October 20th, the ball is back in the court, in our court, as citizens, to hold people to account. It's, it's not a change of government we need. Well, that's certainly not uh, the only thing that is necessary to set us back on a, a, a happier course. What ultimately is more important than any political decision is a greater public understanding of what evidence-based decision-making has to contribute to the public good. Um, and so figuring out specifically what that means and ensuring that policies are put in place to bring that about is the most important thing. So that was a really long-winded way to address your question. I suppose the shorter way to say would be See our website, there's concrete information there that can hopefully be of use to everyone as we make decisions during the federal election campaign. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, Terry Shellington is my name. <clears throat> I'd just like to place before you a question that came up at one of the recent candidate forums and let you deal with it. Uh, well, it had to do with the uh, uh, destruction of scientific libraries and the response from Rachel Harder, the conservative candidate, it's very clear that these libraries have been digitized, and so removal of the hard copies was an irrelevant concern. Would you speak to that? Yes. Um, well, I appreciate the premise of her answer. Presumably, in answering that way, the candidate is recognizing that these libraries are of enduring value and should not be destroyed. So I, I applaud that perspective. I think that is correct. However, I have to admit to some skepticism about the possibility of digitization as the solution to uh, the apparent need to throw books in dumpsters. I'm not, I won't, not quite sure where that need derives from. But digitization cannot be a solution for any number of reasons. First is, it is hugely uneconomical to digitize hard copy materials in the volume in which they exist, given that the need for these is highly specialized. Uh, they're hugely useful to somebody like myself, but I mean, I'm not kidding myself. There's not a huge line of people behind me waiting to use them. So the sort of work I do, the material contained there could be of extreme value. And storing a book for decades for me to come and use and then construct a new historical understanding of the agricultural transformations that have gone in this part of the world, I think that's a good investment. I think that is a good use of funds. However, digitization is fundamentally more expensive. It requires infrastructure on a whole other scale. And I'm skeptical that, it, that there would be a logical reason to make that investment. Um, second, materials, and that's just with respect, I'm thinking, with respect to the gray literature. With respect to published volumes that are still under copyright, um, that may have been disposed of, um, the government of Canada cannot legally get into the digitization of these materials. It would be, I mean, it's, it's, it's a legal issue. It's not possible. Why you would dispose of resources of that sort is uh, uh, not obvious to me. And, and maybe just to, to expand on that answer a bit, digitization is often trotted out as sort of a defensive posture by people who recognize um, the value of something that is not being looked after appropriately or appropriately funded. And when I say the value of something, I'm making a segue here between the issue of libraries 
and the question of archives. As a historian, I also spend a lot of time working in archival documents, and the archives community has been decimated over the past decade with the sorts of funding cuts that you can see affecting other um, national scientific organizations. And, and the logic there has been, don't worry, we're digitizing this stuff, you know, as, as the shredder runs in the background. That is not economically viable for exactly the same reason that it doesn't make sense to undertake some sort of massive digitization of grade literature. Storing uh, a historical letter that will provide historians with a nugget to transform our understanding of Canadian history is an investment. Digitizing it, bearing the cost related to that digitization, um, the, the labor, the man hours, the uh, labor necessary to maintain it on the internet in perpetuity, that's not, that, that's a different sort of investment that the logic of making that investment, well, it would be wonderful for me as a historian to be able to do all my work from my desk at home. It's just not logical. So I, I'm skeptical. I appreciate the candidate's recognition of the value of those sorts of resources, but I don't believe digitization provides a real solution. So I guess um, if anybody is ever, again, in a situation to engage in that dialogue, I would ask, I, I would press and say, how, how is that digitization going to work? How are all of us as Canadians going to be able to access those materials in the way that these libraries usually <coughs> open to the public? Where's the finding aid that we can use, the online search tool? Let us know. We want to know. And let's see what the next answer is there. Thanks for your comments today. Uh, I, it was uh, reinforcing for some of my thoughts. Uh, I'm uh, uh, looking at your federal election and the comments you about engaging candidates in communities. And uh, as a person who has been out on the doorstep canvassing for a particular party, uh, I am wondering, okay, how can I help people to understand what is actually happening? Will they ever believe me? Uh, the question often is no. I, that comes obvious uh, often. But how can we get them concerned about what's happening with science? Because uh, either they're interested or they're not. And, uh, and and some of them, like you put up two North yeah, smart three. Uh, that that is an option, and and it, will they take the time? Like so many people are just voting as they voted for years, or their parents have voted for years, and uh, uh, not changing and looking at anything. And how do we get people to inform themselves? Great question, and thank you for the time you're investing in the political campaign. I think that's of fundamental importance, and particularly for the concerns about evidence-based decision-making that you are bringing to the fore. Um, I, I, yes, I went to True North Smart and Free here. This is the web tool that Evidence for Democracy created to sort of collect some of the stories and that I've laid before you today, and many others that are part of the narrative of what's happened to our evidence-based decision-making capacity in Canada over the past decade. Um, having conversations in person is a great way to change discussions. But I think the question then is, how do we move from that in-person engagement to a broader construction of a different sort of social norm in which evidence-based decision-making is the default, sort of the expectation, rather than something we have to strive toward and I think that's something that we can work for in a number of ways. Social media provides some pretty neat tools, and that's one of the reasons that Evidence for Democracy 
offers these web tools because they are so shareable. So if you if you do Facebook, if you tweet, um, that can be a way to circulate these things and to create um, a public space in which the expectation of evidence-based decision-making is prevalent. Um, now, not everybody's into social media, um, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Um, <laughs> there's also, uh, of course, a number of other public outlets. Letters to newspapers can be hugely influential. With a well-placed letter to the editor, or if you're able off-ed, you can reach more people than you probably could in an afternoon of door knocking. And it can contribute to the same sort of thing. Uh, the sense of a public dialogue based around the expectation of evidence-based decision making, which I think is really fundamental to ensuring that any party, regardless of political strength, will recognize their responsibility to make decisions based on evidence. So that would be my suggestion. Try to take your efforts um, as significant and as important as they are in door knocking. I mean, that's one of the key ways to build a political movement. But see if you can amplify them through social media or um, uh, outlets like newspapers, asking questions at candidates' forums. I've heard a number of times about that great question put to Rachel Harder. And I'm so pleased that people are asking that question. Even just asking those questions tells politicians that we care about that stuff. Thank you for your presentation. Um, my name is Jim Moyer, and like Hanning, I used to work at the research station. <coughs> now, I'd like to give you a specific example and ask whether there's any way I would obtain this information now. Um, this is several years ago. I was asked to make a presentation about effective crop rotations on weeds. And I found in the research reports from the Brandon Research Station in the 30s, uh, report what effect of alfalfa on wild oats and I think Canada thistle. That was in a research report, not published in a journal. <coughs> How would I, would that be stored somewhere in Ottawa now, those old research reports? And if it is there, how would I access it? And how would I even know it was there? Yes. <laughs> those are fundamental challenges. Um, that document may exist somewhere. And it may not. Probably it does. It may well be in a university library somewhere. Uh, it may be at Library Archives Canada, maybe. Uh, but you couldn't have it sent to you. You would have to go there. Um, I think that what you're hitting on here is the fundamental inefficiency of eliminating what the government would have us see as redundant copies. The Even if copies remain in existence somewhere, the effort needed to access them, to even locate them, is a huge investment that, that um, represents a significant draw on resources, both time and effort, and all the expense that derives from them. Uh, so I would be quite concerned about your ability to replicate the actions that it sounds like you took effectively and efficiently some time ago at this point in time. Perhaps you'd be able to do it, um, perhaps not. Um, my name's Austin Fennell. Thanks a lot for your talk. Um, as I was listening to it, it seemed to me in some respects that the title you give to it is quite sophisticated. And it's not necessarily easy to wrap your head around what you're trying to say. 
Now, I couldn't come up with an alternative. Sorry, just the, the title, Evidence for Democracy? Well, you had the word scientific in there as well, in your second, uh, your second, uh, and I thought, why does she put that one in as well? Anyway, let's go on and say, who of your colleagues have been similarly affected by this kind of thing? Um, if uh, archives, for instance, is funded uh, by any government source, are they threatening to download it? That's really ended up with two questions. First of all, about any of your colleagues who are now being affected by this. Let's go with that. Sure. Um, my closest colleagues, the colleagues I can consider my closest colleagues, are other environmental historians. So people who uh, are fundamentally engaged with the analysis of environmental change, and particularly oriented to the human role in driving environmental change over historical periods. So in this part of the world, since about 1850. Um, scientific evidence, past science, is basic to what we do. Science provides a key means not only for us to gain information about how the world actually works as we see it at this point, but also how we have thought the world works. So to recreate the intellectual frame within which people made decisions about all sorts of things at an earlier time scale. Um, in the absence of the sort of gray literature that has been disposed of, it becomes far more difficult to recreate those earlier life worlds. Um, and it, perhaps the greatest risk is in thinning out the available gray literature. Because if there's some, well, you just have to make a go, right? You make the best of what you have, but the risks of building a false interpretation of making a mistake simply because you don't have enough data become higher and higher, the um, less information you're able to access and use to um, refine your interpretation. The existence of very thin information is a far riskier situation, I would think, than a situation of zero data. And we are working increasingly to thin information. Um, I forget the second question. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, hi, uh, first of all, I apologize because I missed your presentation, but I did hear some of the questions, so that's but did you have lunch? Uh, no, no, okay. it was okay. okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to make a comment, and then I'm going to ask a question. I'm Maria Fitzpatrick, and I'm the MLA for Left oh, right. uh, So, um, my comment is, I was at the forum last night, and the same candidate, the same candidate, uh, gave the same response with an added comment. And the added comment was, she has a friend who is a scientist who told her that, you know, it was 10 years since he needed to use the library. First of all, I questioned a scientist who wouldn't be using the library only once in 10 years. So the second part is I worked 32 and a half years in corrections, and um, correction service, uh, Correctional Service of Canada had an addictions research center in Montague uh, PEI, which was closed in 2012. And um, I um, needed to research and find some uh, literature that they had at the research center in Montague, and I was not able to find it, and I was not able to find anybody in my department 
who could tell me where it was. So in terms of anybody digitizing anything, I have no idea who would have done it because they cut the budget by almost 50% in terms of anybody who would do that. So again, my question is similar to others. Where do you go? That was my department. I knew where to look and I can't find it. So where do I go from here? I guess my flippant answer would be you go to your MP. <laughs> but more seriously, I mean that is that is a challenging question. Dead ends are a normal part of doing research. However, we are creating a situation with artificially multiplying dead ends where researchers are going to come up on blind alleys again and again and it will be impossible to know ultimately, to ever know absolutely for sure if this was just one of the tantalizing tidbits that as researchers we can't, we find all the time but can't pursue because of an absence of data or if this is an absence of data produced through um, political actions that disregard the value of, of, of pieces of evidence that could have been preserved, that should, I would say, should have been preserved. That is, I think, another one of the challenges for all of us, to maintain the memory of what has happened here over the past 10 years and incorporate that into how we do this sort of work going forward. I need to signal in my work as a researcher that I've done the best I can in the circumstances. And the circumstances have changed in the past 10 years. I cannot do research as thoroughly as I did before, and I need to acknowledge that. That's the circumstance we will all function in going forward, and we need to tie it back to specific, identifiable political choices. I'm Beth from Little Atherstone. My background is education. I'm a professor at the university at one point. I'm retired. I'm just a rabble rouser now. <laughs> Trouble me. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your well-organized talk about the loss of the evidence-based decision-making research. And uh, I think many of us here knew quite a few of those points, but beautifully put together. So you t I want to talk about your last point, and that is the in informing the public. Um, I'm at every single one of the forums, and it would be beautiful to have a screen behind the candidates, and when they say something that they say is research-based or evidence-based, do have someone look it up quickly and then flash what the evidence is right behind them. You know, that would, that would certainly teach the public about evidence-based research. But my, my bigger concern, my larger concern, is our public school system and our universities. Um, which are getting more and more uh, geared to the private, the private sector. Um, we were talking at our table about even where our curriculum is coming from. And Andrew Bickford, who was here two years ago, two weeks ago, just um, produced a book about the demise of our uh, our educational system. So how can we produce a an educated, informed public that understands about evidence-based decision making? One, with the lack of our public education systems, and two, with the proliferation of all kinds of garbage on the internet and 
as well as active disinformation on our TV. Well, <laughs> that is a good articulation, I think, of one of the fundamental challenges facing us all at this point in time. How can we reassert the value of the sorts of public dialogue, deliberate consideration of evidence that isn't doesn't easily fit, with no respect, disrespect at all to people tweeting this presentation, I'm grateful, but doesn't easily fit within the size of a tweet. I mean, how do we draw on new technologies to ultimately make more robust the sorts of public discussions that I think are basic to evidence-based decision making? Um, evidence is important. I like evidence. I advocate for its importance nonstop. But evidence does not always point in a clear direction. It's not always obvious what policy should derive from a single bit of research or even from a large body of research. And so ultimately, it's through um, considered dialogue between policymakers, between the public, um, between politicians over these issues that we can ultimately figure out where, in the context of our society, any piece of evidence is pointing us. Um, and so I think that we all need to look on that, ultimately, that um, being here, engaging in this long-form public discussion is a political act. I mean, your vote um, in support of SACPAW is an illustration of your belief in the importance of all of this, and I am grateful um, for this opportunity to be with you and for your commitment to all of this. It's hugely important. Um, it's, it's basic. It's basic. I wish I had a better answer. I'd love to hear any answers you have, any of you. My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming down today from flying down from the Edmonton. You're lucky that the wind didn't blow. Uh, my question relates to, as I understand it, a lot of the research done on research centered, government research centered, focus on industry related uh, uh, focus. It's, it's industry focused. Uh, if that's not true, then you can say so. But I'm wondering about universities. Uh, corporate uh, influence is creeping in there as well. How slippery do you think that slope is? I had the opportunity to speak with some scientists, people who work in the natural sciences, about this question at the University of Alberta just about a week ago. The Canadian Association of University Teachers hosted a Get Science Right event. Maybe some of you have seen this move across the country to host events of these sorts. It was really great. Uh, and one of the things I learned, or at least had more clearly explained to me, is that one of the things that has occurred over the past decade is a shift in emphasis. And we saw some of that in the numbers I showed earlier, between the funding of pure science and the funding for translational science. Translational science being science that moves pure science discoveries into the realm of, of um, uh, sort of for market commercial applications. Um, and there is money available for translational science, translational science. Um, unfortunately, there's a pipeline here. Um, not unfortunately, there is a pipeline here between pure science discoveries 
building a broader corpus, a broader understanding of how the world works. Um, and then there's a more narrow pipe, not predictable, um, not reliably predictable. If not in a reliable way are you able to predict which of the pure science discoveries will be able to make the leap into science that can be applied in a commercial sort of way. Nor is the, the making that leap a quick proposition, nor is it, um, as I say, predictable. So things, um, insights that uh, are derived directly, or commercial applications that we now all carry in our back pockets within our cell phones, emerge from pure science undertaken over decades. If you narrow the pipeline of pure science investment, you limit those uh, applications that are able to be available to make the transition into commercial applications, and you ultimately diminish um, what will be available for us in our daily lives down the road. So there's a real um, problem in emphasizing funding to commercial science, to translational science, at the expense of, of, of pure science. You might have a little blip in your productivity as you're able to move more of the promising findings into commercial applications more rapidly, but the pipeline is going to go dry, and it's going to go dry quickly, and then you're going to be in a deficit for years to come relative to where you've been before. So I think there are all sorts of reasons to be concerned about a shift in funding from pure science to translational science, and it doesn't need to depend on your belief in the value of adding to the corpus of human knowledge. Even if you're just purely interested in the sort of commercial applications that we now all have in our smartphones, um, it doesn't make any sense to concentrate all the funding dollars here and, and to starve the pure science over here. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. We are running short of time, so these will be the last two questions. Uh, I'm Harry Eldon. I'm not a researcher, so I have no idea how you go about finding these obscure papers that you're looking for. On the other hand, I found through the internet, if I need some information, I can frequently find something in places that are most unexpected. So I would think that with material digitized, you might run across things with your search that you would never find otherwise. So there have to be some positive aspects there, apart from the negative ones that you mentioned. Absolutely. The process of doing the sorts of historical research that I do has been drastically transformed uh, by the ability to search the web over the past decade or so. Um, and it will be continue to be transformed. And it's uh, historians far more skilled in this sort of thing than I am are developing new ways of applying um, computer technologies to historical research in some pretty exciting ways. However, however, the sorts of obscure documents that are fundamental to the sort of research I do um, I can't believe they will ever be digitized for any number of reasons. Um, their need for them by researchers such as myself is too thin. I, I'm certain it would be judged too thin uh, on the part of the federal government to invest the expense, the significant expense in undertaking that digitization. But I would argue that the fact that it's only going to be used by one or two or five researchers doesn't mean it isn't important. The work that I do, that other historians do, will inform how we understand ourselves as a nation into the future. It, it is not limited in its application to me. It's not only of significance to me. I might use it as a raw material, but my work 
has the potential to challenge, to inform, to elucidate a variety of things of far broader concern to Canadians. So I, I, yes, absolutely, the ability to work on the web is huge. The value of getting documents of interest to multiple people into their hands directly through the internet is real, and I'm in favor of that. I think it's fantastic to have more people dealing in what I call primary sources, sort of original documentation from a broad range of historical periods. However, digitization of historical records will never be a solution for historians doing professional historical research. It just doesn't, um, it doesn't make economic sense even from someone who would really wish it did. My name's Shannon Little, and I'm also a federal government researcher. So you touched upon this in one of your previous comments, but I'd like you to uh, comment on the change that has occurred with the way <coughs> research is funded. So moving from research that's government, taxpayer-funded, public good research, to research that is funded through other funding models and often on short timelines, and perhaps if you could add an idea about how we can move back to the way that we had originally funded public good research that was done not for commercial or industrial applications. Excellent question. Um, I showed you recall two slides. Um, one pertained to figures, government funding uh, changes over the past five years or so in the context of internal funding to government and then the earlier slide was in the context of external government funding, largely to universities through funding bodies such as the Social Sciences and Humanities Council of Canada, the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, and the Canadian Institutes for Health Information. One of the aspects I didn't get to in my discussion of those slides was how much of the money that today flows out through Tri-Council, those three funding bodies that I just named, um, comes along with the expectation that you will find what's called matching funds. That you will find someone positioned, uh, ideally a commercial partner with deep pockets who's interested in your research, to chip in a huge uh, sum to, in effect, fund your research in the expectation that the results will be of interest to them. Sometimes this works really well. If um, your interest, if you're doing something, maybe you're a researcher in engineering interested in developing uh, new types of asphalt technology, that's great. And perhaps there are companies who would be interested in funding your research at this early stage and so potentially having the ability to capitalize on your new discoveries. That sounds like a really great idea. However, there are lots of situations in which it doesn't work nearly so well in which the connections to potential commercial applications are not obvious at the outset, as they very rarely are, in which the time frame to develop commercial applications, even if it is obvious how they will make that way from, a, from pure science to applied science, how they will make that way down the pipeline, um, is, 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 is just far too long to ever interest a commercial partner. Or think of someone working in the context of the social sciences. Maybe they're doing research on um, population demographics on changing population statistics in the context of Canada, which will have all sorts of implications for how we deliver health services, how we deliver social welfare programs, our pension structure, these things that all have the potential to affect our lives in very concrete ways. Who's going to partner? 
I mean, there are all sorts of good agencies, good non-post-secondary um, associated agencies working on these issues, but they're primarily nonprofits. I mean, this is not a situation in which there are, there's somebody operating commercially who's turning up good profit margins that they're going to want to reinvest in, like, in the expectation that research is going to position them to profit again later on. It's just not a good fit. A lot of the research that is fundamentally necessary to improve our understanding of the world, to improve our well-being as, as citizens and Canadians, just isn't a good fit for a market partner. And I think it's really worrying in a situation where the expectation of, of partner money, of, of partner grants, contributions from people, from organizations interested in commercial applications, can ultimately tip the scales in terms of whether or not your research gets funded at all. It's um, a worrying trend in which the concerns of commercial partners have the potential to direct pure science. Uh, I think it's something we should all be concerned about, and I'm glad you asked. Oh shoot, sorry, wrong one. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 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 <laughs>